Welcome to the Hanover Valley Podcast, a ministry of Hanover Valley Presbyterian Church. We are located at 133 Carlisle Street in downtown Hanover, Pennsylvania. Check out the rest of our website at hanovervalley.org. Thank you for listening. The, we put it in the uh, bulletin uh, so that folks can find it more easily during this time when the uh, when we're in the virus, uh, in the pandemic season, so that we're not having to share Bibles and cleanse Bibles and all the rest. But uh, it's, in the, it's in there. Chapter 1, we're going to focus our attention on this, uh, on this uh, as it were, wayward prophet uh, of God, um, uh, given a mission and reluctant as he was, um, accomplished it. So we're going to look, as it were, to uh, chapter 1, Jonah. Follow along as I read, uh, read from God's Word. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, "How How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah, threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for Three days and three nights. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for your grace. Thank you that you give us uh, rich uh, stories of how you care for your people. And Lord, I pray that you might um, inform our minds and captivate our hearts and subdue our will to the work of your kingdom and in our hearts and in your world. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes uh, 
when I when I look at God, um, when I when I un, when I try to understand God, and He's given us a whole book of stories to understand Him. He wants us to understand Him. He's not trying to hide. He's trying to be vulnerable. He's trying to, to, to make himself known to us. But sometimes when I, when I try to understand God and, and the work that he's doing in my life, he just, his judgment just seems to be off. Do you think that sometimes? That he, just, that he just, his plans are just a little askew. He doesn't quite have the right sort of, um, he, his, he, just, he just seems a little, be a little unreasonable in some, in some ways. Well, I mean, you know, in particular, you know, um, there, there's, a, there's an enduring um, uh, droning prayer request in the bulletin that's been in here for a year and a half. Uh, it's, it relates to my family. It's almost an ongoing sort of, um, uh, it, it, we've been praying for my in-laws to sell their home, which they've been trying to get out from under, uh, for a year and a half to sell their home. And we, we had it on the market all last year. And we, bet we felt like it was what God wanted us to do. And for the whole, we put it on the market and we priced it right and we made it easy and we got the best realtor and we got the best everything and everything and we put it on the market and it didn't sell for the entire year. I mean, day upon day and week and month and month and month. Upon, and we just get discouraged. And, and last, last uh, holidays, November-ish, I think, last year, December, November, December, we just took it off the market. And, you know, her parents were discouraged. We were discouraged. And we're going, God, what the heck are you doing? And this seems very unreasonable. And then we thought about, okay, well, maybe in the new year, we'll, we'll take a few months off and we'll put it back on the market. You know, we'll shoot for, you know, when spring hits and we'll put it back on the market. And then all of a sudden, the pandemic. So now we can't, you can't put a house on the market when everybody's living in their room. That's unreasonable. That doesn't make any sense either. So, okay, God, um, our, our, his judgment again just seems unreasonable. And then this past Monday, the real, we had talked to the realtor. As things are starting to open back up, the, the realtor, uh, we had called the realtor over the time, and then we, we talked to him. This past the, the realtor a couple weeks ago said, well, what if we put it on the market come the beginning of July? It's a good season. You know, people seem to be getting out. We'll see how it goes. It's summertime, but, you know, it's pandemic. Who knows what's going to happen, but whatever. And so Monday we put it on the market. All week long it's getting blown up with visits and people are coming by, and yesterday it sold. Contract sold. And not only did it sell, they, got, they put a contract in on a house they're going to buy, and they got a house that they're going to buy all in one day. After 18 months of God's unreasonable plan, I don't, it doesn't make, I don't, I, I, I can't fathom, his judgments just seem, his judgment seems off. His ideas, his plans just seem odd. I don't know how to follow what's going on in this situation. And when I, the reason I tell you that is, number one, to tell you, to tell you, scratch that prayer request off and thank God for it because I'm tired of seeing it on here. But number two, I'm trying to say, this is what Jonah's going on about. This is the issue with Jonah. The whole book of Jonah, the reason that for his reluctance is the same reason for my reluctance when it comes to when God tells us to do something, when God puts it out there, and, and we're all living in a time when God's judgment, when God's plan, when God's sovereign control over the world seems very unreasonable. Since March, he's been saying, stay in your houses. There's a deadly disease out there. We don't want it to pass. Love your neighbor by, and now love your neighbor by keeping on a mask. Go to church with a mask on. That doesn't make sense. As a matter of fact, yeah, what, 
what he's doing seems oddly unreasonable. And the reason I say that that's what's going on with Jonah is that God, God uh, tells Jonah at the very beginning, he says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And Jonah, and Jonah hightails it. Jonah says, I don't want to be a part of that plan. Your plan for Nineveh seems completely unreasonable to me. I am, not in, I am not in keeping with what's going on, and you may have a plan for Nineveh, but it's not going to involve me. I'm not going to be a part of what you're doing in Nineveh. Why is that? A um, little of a backstory here that you may not be as familiar with. Um, in Jonah, it's a great, Jonah's a story that the children know. Jonah's a story, Jonah and the whale, we call it. Jonah and the great fish. And we see that great fish. He makes, the great fish makes his cameo right there at the end of the verse of chapter 1. And really, the great fish is really a cameo in this story. There's a whole lot more going on in the life of Jonah than, than the fish story. It's, you know, he gets, you know, he's in the fish, you know, chapter 2, and we see some of that, but that's about it. And then we move on. There's a whole lot more going on with Jonah than just the fish. And part of the backstory here is Jonah was an Israelite. Jonah was a Hebrew. He's, he mentions it here to the sailors. He was a Hebrew, and their worst enemies at this time in their lives, their most definable, their most definable oppressors. In this time, in the, history of, uh, in the history of the Hebrews, do you know who their most definable oppressors were, their most hated enemy? The Ninevites. The Ninevites were out to destroy them. The Ninevites, there was a, there was a racial d discord. There was an ethnic disharmony between these two. And there, was a, and there was a desire of the Ninevites to conquer the Hebrews and to bring them under submission and to bring them under oppression. And Jonah hears this first couple of verses. He hears this first couple of verses. God says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, here's this, now hearing a little backstory about Jonah, the Hebrew, against the Ninevites, the enemies, why in the world, why in the world, if God says to Jonah, I got a plan for you, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Why wouldn't the prophet who is committed to God and his plans and also hating the Ninevites because they're the oppressors of the Hebrews, why, when faced with that plan, would Jonah say, I don't want to be a part of it? I would think God says, I finally, I'm, I'm, out, to get, I'm out to get Nineveh. Uh, their wickedness has risen up before me. I've seen, they've come up, the, what they've done, uh, I've seen their sin, and their sin rises up before me, and I'm sending you to go preach against it. Uh, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't Jonah be kicking up his heels? Why wouldn't Jonah be counting his lucky stars? Why wouldn't Jonah be going, yes, indeed, I want to be a part of this plan? Finally, 
finally, O Lord, you're doing exactly as we've been praying. Our oppressors, their sin, we, we've been, uh, we've been o- overwhelmed by, with hatred. We've been overwhelmed by a desire to see these people go down. And finally, you're putting together a plan where I'm gonna, you're going to send me to go preach that they're going down. Why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Why would he run from a plan like that? Because we find this a little, out a little bit later, and we'll see this as the weeks go on, but sort of tell you the end of the story before the beginning. The reason that Jonah ran from God The reason that Jonah ran from God rather than join in on that plan is because Jonah knew God really well. He understood God's heart. He understood how God responds when a nation's sin rises up before him. uh, Jonah understood that the God and the heart of God and the grace of God, that when the sin of a people rises up into his face and when he sends a prophet to go preach against it, what that ends up doing, what God ends up doing in those situations is he ends up giving mercy to the people he's care- he, 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 he's, he sees as rebellious against him. When their sin rises up before him, God is almost always, God is, God is always a gracious God. He's a merciful God. That in the face of sin, in the face of rebellion, in the face of oppression, in the face of wickedness, when, God's, when wickedness rises before the Lord, when oppression arises before the Lord, when, when sin rises before the Lord, his response is to save it, is to transform it. When sin rises in front of our eyes, when sin rises in front of Jonah's eyes, when hatred rises in front of, of Jonah, when, when uh, oppression, when wickedness, when, when, uh, when brokenness rises in front of humanity's eyes, our response is retribution, wrath, get even, hatred, fight fire with fire, return evil for evil. This is our response, but when God sees sin and wickedness. This is why his judgment is unreasonable because rather than visit wrath upon Nineveh, and we see this later on, wrath did not not come down upon Nineveh. What came down upon Nineveh was mercy, was forgiveness, was transformation. And Jonah knew that God was going to be merciful and rather than submit to God's plan for the Ninevites' life, and for his and for his own plan for his own life, Jonah says, "I don't want any part of a plan that's going to be merciful to a people I hate, to a culture, to a culture that has been oppressive to my people." That Jonah's hatred was more tangible. Jonah's hatred, Jonah's racism, Jonah's sense of cultural divide was of more value to him, the paradigm out of which he grew. Now, he was probably raised with this hatred his whole life. He was probably raised in the culture of this, of this uh, ethnic war most of his life. And so the paradigm of his own 
of his own life was hatred against the Ninevites, and he was so caught up in that paradigm, he couldn't surrender it. He couldn't embrace a different paradigm, which was the paradigm of mercy. And so off he runs because God was being unreasonable. The other thing we see about God's unreasonable process here is is that uh, when faced with that, the unreasonable thing that God does next, not only is he unreasonably in love with a a people who are oppressing his, his, his children, because God's idea was, I'm not going to destroy your enemies, I'm going to transform your enemies. I'm not out to destroy. I'm out to, I'm out to redeem. I'm not out, to, I'm not out to, 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 to annihilate wickedness. I'm out to make it into godliness. That's how transformative God's grace is. And really, when you look at the landscape of Scripture, the, the thing that is most often hated in Scripture is not so much that God is too harsh. It's that he's too merciful. When Jesus came and he's spending time with all these sinners and he's transforming people's hearts and he's engaging people that no one else would engage and he's breaking barriers just like in the last series that we looked at in June when we see the Samaritan woman, he's breaking cultural barriers, he's breaking gender barriers, he's breaking moral barriers, he's going to places that no one else would go and caring for people no one else would care for and the thing that made people angry in his day and age was his mercy, was his grace, it wasn't his harshness. Same thing here. It's been, it's been true from the very beginning with God. What makes people upset? Cain got upset. The very first murder happened in Scripture because Cain was upset that God was merciful and received his brother's sacrifice, his brother's offering. And to take his hatred out, he, to take out that unreasonable hatred, he kills his brother as if that's going to make it better. It's the mercy of God that makes us, that confounds us. How can God be so merciful to a people that is so wicked? There's, a, there's, a, uh, there's an author named Miroslav Volf who wrote a book on mercy, and he says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of the shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. That's a complicated quote, but what Miroslav Volf is saying is that you and I, we exclude ourselves from the, from the culture of sinners. And we, and we only think of our enemies in the culture of the monstrous sinful. But if you, one of the signs of having met Jesus, one of the signs of having been in the presence, the regular presence of God and understanding his mercy, is that you, is that you remove your sense, it removes our sense of pride, and now we see ourselves as the bigger sinner, and we see our enemies as in common need for the mercy of God, just as I am. 
And if you don't have that experience, if you don't, if you don't have a sense of mercy for the wicked, if you don't have a sense of, of grace for the oppress, for the oppressor, then you haven't been in the presence of God. You don't understand his grace because that's the nature of God. The nature of God is to forgive. He desires to bring about mercy, and that's what you see in the life of the Ninevites. But you also see it in the life of this reluctant, wayward prophet. Because basically, God, you know, what we see here is God comes to Jonah and says, I want you to go to Nineveh and bring about a work of mercy. And Jonah says, I won't do it. I'm not going to do it. I can't do it. There's nothing you can do to make me do it. As a matter of fact, I'm running away from this prospect. You can do whatever you want, but I'm off the team. And it wasn't as if Jonah thought he could actually get away from God's presence. He understood that God is everywhere. There's no way you can run from his actual localized presence. What he was basically saying was, I, you know, I know you're God. I just, I'm, I quit. I'm not going to do what you call me to do. I'm, I'm off the team. I'm not going to be the prophet you want me to be. And I'm, and I'm good with it. And he goes down. Here's, and here's the thing. It's interesting how, you know, um, he says, I'm running from God. And then he goes down to the port and says, oh, Look at this. There's a ship going to Tarshish. This is fantastic. <laughs> what a coincidence. Everything's, everything's working well. And he puts down his money and he gets on board. And, then he's, and, then, and, and he's content with it enough to go sleep in the bottom of the ship. He's happy with his decision. He's content to be off the team, to be running from God, to be rebelling from this mission, to be hating, hating. He's content in his hate for the Ninevites, and ultimately in his hatred for God. He's content, he's content to, to run away and be off the team and let God do whatever he's going to do, and I'm done with it. I'm, all, I'm, I'm done. And this is, his hatred grows, consumes him, overwhelms him to the point where he's ready to push God aside and say, I don't want any part of what you're doing. What's God's response to this in the life of, uh, of Jonah? What's God's response to rebellion? I'm giving you a plan. You're on my team. You're on the payroll. He was one of God's prophets. He's on the payroll, as it were. And what's his response to when his prophet says, I don't want any part of it? And when he sees the hatred seething inside of him, and that he'd rather, he'd rather feast on the, on the flavor of hatred and bitterness and and, and need for vengeance rather than feasting on the mercy of God, rather than dwelling on the forgiveness of God, he's dwelling on his own bitter hatred, and, he, and that is his warm blanket which allowed him to fall asleep in the bottom of the boat. What is God's response to that kind of bitter rage, hatred, violent racism, and rebellion? It's to pursue him, not abandon him come after him. What does, God's, what does God do when he, when he runs into rebels, those who are rebelling? He pursues them. He comes after. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. He doesn't wash his hands and say, I'm done with you. He commits himself to caring and being merciful even to his rebellious prophet. That's unreasonable. You and I, how many times, how many times do you, do you have, have to be rejected? How many times have you tried to console the inconsolable and you're going, I'm, I'm done with this person? How many times have you had to forgive someone for doing the same thing 
over again. Three times. Even Peter, when, when Peter was asked, how many times should I forgive my brother? And, and, uh, and he says, well, seven times, which seven times, that's a lot. You do the, seven, seven, you, you do the same sin seven times, seven. I mean, think about it. You get lied to by the same person about the same thing seven times. Is it going to take seven? We operate under the, we, we, we operate under the MLB version of that. What I mean by MLB is the Major League Baseball version of forgiveness, which is three strikes and you are out. You lie to me once, okay, maybe that was me. You lie to me twice, all right, I forgive you. You lie to me three times, done. Peter was doubling and downing with one on that and said seven, and Jesus said, nope, 77, seven times 70. You know, keep at it, never stop forgiving. And this is a reflection of the mercy of God that he pursues rather than abandons. He pursues, he pursues Jonah in this process. He won't let him go because he was his. And he wanted to even transform. Uh, you know, part of me, part of me, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, Jonah's sin, Jonah's hatred, Jonah's rebellion, Jonah's wickedness was dormant in his life. It was, he was blind to it. It lay in his heart unnoticed by him until God says, I want you to do a work of mercy for me. And when God gave him the work of mercy for a people he hated, Jonah began to see that, the very, that there was a seething wickedness, a seething darkness inside of his heart that was rising to the surface. And as we've said before, the way to know what's inside the cup is to bump the cup and see what spills out. And Jonah's cup, the cup of his heart, the cup of his life is getting bumped pretty severely because God was saying he bumped it with his mercy and says, I'm going to be merciful to a people you hate. I'm going to do something so gracious, it's going to, it's going to rock your world. And not only is my mercy going to, going to rock your world, it's going to expose a part of you that needs my mercy. It's going to expose something in you where you're going to need my grace in a way that you never thought it, you needed it. And you're going to need my forgiveness more than you thought you did. Because I'm going to forgive a people you think shouldn't and ought not be and can't be forgiven. When, you, when I'm going to show you by forgiving these people that you think can't be and shouldn't be forgiven, I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to expose in you that you also are a person who shouldn't be forgiven, but will be, because I love you. And part of me wonders, who is God's primary work of salvation aimed at in this story? Is he trying to save the Ninevites and Jonah was a byproduct? Or was he trying to save Jonah from his own sinful rage and from his own, from his own need for transformation? And the Ninevites were the byproduct, were the method. I don't know. But it just proves to you that God is, a, is constantly orchestrating his salvation. He's orchestrating his restoration in a variety of ways. What is God doing with a pandemic? What is God doing with the loss of a job? What is God doing with not selling a house for 18 months? Lord knows, 
Lord knows, he exposed a lot of darkness in my heart over the last 18 months to the point where yesterday when the realtor called and said simultaneously, I have uh, the house sold and you got the house you offered and they're all going to close on the same day, oh my goodness, there was almost a part of me that I was embarrassed to go to the Lord and thank him. I was embarrassed to say, oh, Lord, thank you for all this, because any words that I could utter would not replenish the thousands upon thousands of words of hatred I have told him over the last 18 months, and panic, and fear, and rage, and hopelessness, and a sense of unease, and a sense of thinking him unreasonable and ungracious, and truth be told, this doesn't always happen. You don't always get to see some of this stuff. But, you know, the house sold for more money than we ever got last year offered. And the houses that we lost because we couldn't move into them because the other house hadn't sold. My, parent, my in-laws last year, there, were, there was a house or two that they really fell in love with and we were trying to work it out. And even one, and even one family, they were holding the house and holding the house and holding the house and holding the house until we could get it sold and get it sold and get it sold. And we're going, God, sell the house because we got this other house and they're going to keep the price low and they love my parents and it's going to work out great. And, you know, and then nothing. The house they got yesterday... They like it better than all those other houses. I mean, literally. I'm going. So, okay, in the end, God's reasonable. So as I say, as I'm praying, God, thank you, the words are almost embarrassing because what the Lord used with a simple not selling a house for 18 months, the wickedness, the darkness, the evil, the, the hopelessness, the, the, the rebellion that he uncovered in my life that I didn't know was there. And now I'm even embarrassed to talk about it, but not embarrassed because he, he forgives me and he didn't, he didn't stop pursuing me. And, and because his work is merciful to expose in our lives. And he's doing that with the pandemic and he's doing that with job loss and he's doing that with the circumstances in your life. He's doing that with some of the racial stuff that's developing. He's doing it with some of the political stuff that's developing. He's doing it with, he's doing it with cultural things. He's doing it with, with, with personal things. He's doing it with internal things and emotional things. He is rocking you. He's, he's using, he's bringing the circumstances and plans of his life to rock your world, to show you where the wickedness is, to show you your need of forgiveness, to show you that you are as rebellious as the thing and need of transformation of a thing that you think can't be transformed because he's a God who wants to be merciful. The other unreasonable thing we see here is that, which relates very closely to this, is that God often uses storms, not calm, to convince us of this. Jonah wasn't convinced of a need to change until the storm came and it put other people at risk. Here's a situation where, huh, the pagans, the reason we know, I say pagans, I mean that they worshipped other gods than the god of Christianity in the boat. The sailors from all kinds of places with all kinds of different religions, and we know there are all kinds of different religions because it says they're each played to their own god. Each had their own false religion, and they're all praying to solve this problem. And then Jonah's in the boat sleeping, praying to no one because I don't want any part of God's plan, and I'm on the run, and they knew he was on the run. And here's the thing, who was causing the problem in the world at this point? 
in the world of that boat, who was the problem child? Was it the wicked sinner pagans or was it the wicked sinner Christian causing the problems? And in this instance, it was a wicked sinner Christian. And, a lot, and I tend to think that there's a lot of wicked sinner churches and Christians in the world causing the problems. And so God says, rather than convince you with a still, small voice, I need to bring a storm. And he brings the storm. And he brings the storm. And upheaval arises. And everybody's crying out for salvation. Jonah's response to all this First of all, his, his, he's a bit over, he overreacts a good bit, which shows you his, uh, his sort of captivation with his own hate. He's wrapped up in, this, in, he's wrapped up in his own paradigm rather than seeing, seeing the mercy of God. He, actually, he stops believing that God can do amazing things, and he stopped believing his own need of forgiveness. And when you stop, when you stop realizing your own need of forgiveness, it turns you into a hateful, bitter person every time. You stop seeing people mercifully. You stop becoming hopeful of change. You stop. You begin to more concentrate and focus on seeing the, the imperfections than what God is doing. The scriptures say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. What he's saying is, what that means is, is that the work of God's grace is more powerful than the work of destruction. The work of God's grace and forgiveness is more powerful than the work of the devil, which is out to, be, which is out to destroy and to bring evil to the human heart. And what God is saying, what the passage is saying is, greater is he that is in you, Christ is in you, than he that is in the world. The power of grace is more powerful than what's going on in this world. And do we see it? Can we see those things? If it's true, if that's true, that grace is more powerful than wickedness, if that's true and the Scriptures and the Gospel say that it is and the resurrection says that it is, then what are we seeing? What are we looking for in this world? What are we acknowledging in the work of our own hearts? That should, bring, that should make Christians the most honest and the most hopeful people. And that's what Jonah was discovering. God's most, God's probably the biggest, most unreasonable thing we see in this passage that was unreasonable is the very end. It's the very end. The most unreasonable thing, and the sailors ask, what do we do in order to solve this problem? What do we do to bring salvation to us and to this world? What do we do to calm this raging storm, to appease to appease this, this, this God that's troubling our situation. What do we do? And Jonah's response was, kill me and you all will live. That's really what he was saying. And the sailors told us, and you see that, you see that in the sailors' prayer, <laughs> don't you? In the end, it's not like they were th throwing him overboard, like you go to, lake, you go, go to the Cadoris Lake, and you say, oh, I'm just going to jump off the kayak and go swimming for a while. Throw me overboard, you know. <laughs> You know, no, no, this was a raging sea. This was, an, this, was, this was not something anyone survives. And they knew 
that if they threw him overboard, it meant his death. Because they even prayed, Lord, forgive us for killing this innocent man. <laughs> I love innocent man, really? Naive, gracious prayer. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. He's already said, I'm not innocent. I'm guilty. I'm responsible. I did it. I did it. So throw me overboard, and when you kill me, you'll be saved. That's unreasonable. One man's life to bring about the life, one man's death to bring out the life of the, of the many, to bring about salvation for everyone else. One man's death to bring about salvation for the rest of the community. That's the and Jesus t turns on that message when he lived in his life. He says the message of Jonah has been talking about my has been talking about what I've been talking about. The message of Jonah is the message of my life. One man's life who takes responsibility for the sin of everybody else, who takes on the responsibility, who says, I'm responsible. Let me be the sacrifice. That sacrifice to save others. The message of the gospel is what is unreasonable here. It's transformative. How transformative? Well, it transforms the world, stops being crazy. The world calms down. And people get saved. People's lives are transformed. Look at what happened to the sailors. Every one of them worships the God of the storm, worships Jonah's God, offers sacrifices to the, to the God of Jonah, offers vows to the God of Jonah. Their lives are completely flipped upside down. And, and then you go, well, now, was, now wait a minute. Was, God, was God's main point Nineveh? Or was God's main point Jonah? Or wait, was the God's main point, was he trying to get the pagan sailors? I don't... Who's he trying to save? Everybody. That God's trying to change it all. <laughs> he doesn't want, he, he wants it all. He wants to renew everything. Do you want to be a part of that plan? Don't answer too quickly because you really don't. You're just like Jonah. You want him to save most things. But there are places and people and things that you either don't want him to save or you don't think he can. Or that he, in his unreasonable will, has decided to. And in those places where you don't think he can, where you've lost hope that he will, where you don't want him, where you, out of your wickedness, don't want him to, in any of those and all of those, that's the place that he's shaking when he says, I want it all. I'm going to give you it all. I'm going to transform everything. Because one guy took responsibility for everybody else's sin and went into the depths. in order to bring mercy to a mutinous people. This is how much he loves. This is how gracious he will be. This is how transformative it is. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the mercy you exhibited to your enemies, the mercy you exhibited to the ignorant, and the lost, and the mercy that you extended to the hating, rebellious, reluctant servant such as we. Transform your world, Father. 
Help us to continue to believe that you want it all and that you will have it all in your good time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.